Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, welcome to Cross Section. I'm Jo Evans and this week I'm in the London office of the Evangelical Alliance and I'm joined in person with Alicia Edmund and Peter Linus. Good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. It's great to be here without Danny as well. And without internet, internet lag, crucially. Um, so today we are going to be focusing on um, the role of women and women's voices in big political moments, seeking political change. And how could we start any other way but talking about the protests currently going on in Iran? This is a story that has been rumbling along in recent weeks since the 16th of September when Masa Amini at the age of 22 was killed by the Marathi police in Iran. This has sparked huge protests led by women across the country in Iran. Alicia, I'm sure you've seen the social media videos. That's really how this story has been covered through the use of social media. What's your your reaction been to some of those videos? Mm, I think it's definitely shown the power of social media to communicate and connect uh, a localised story with the global community. In particular, I've seen a lot of women across ethnicity, across age, across kind of geo, kind of across the UK engaged in this conversation and somewhat enraged that a woman has lost her life purely because of the way that she wore her hijab or not wearing it correctly. I think I've been personally challenged about the role of activism. So on social media, ideal for Instagram, which is a platform that I'm primarily on, there's a lot of images of women burning their hijabs. There's pictures of school children in classrooms that are pulling down kind of the uh, political and religious leaders in the country and tearing down that image uh, and, and somewhat raising a middle finger to say this is a moment for which we don't agree with, we're not happy with. And whilst I'm in agreement with the uproar and outrage as a Christian, I do believe there's a way of pushing back against political regimes or decisions that also honours Christ. So I'm sort of against the using of the middle finger towards, as a still image, children as young as six that are involved in that. So it's definitely an emotive issue. It's definitely one that I can get behind in terms of advocating for human rights of women and the decisions that they make. Utterly abhorrent that a woman has lost her life in that. So definitely engaged, I would say, in that. Yeah, I've also found it emotional watching some of these videos. There's a, I saw an illustration from an artist, which I'm going to link in the description of this podcast episode. And it's an image of a woman being held by her hair over like a, a massive drop, like a cliff drop. Her hair's being held by the Iranian supreme leader, Ali Khomeini. And she is holding up a pair of scissors and the way she's going to free herself is to cut her hair, which, yeah, there's also that powerful thing that's going to lead to that drop for her. It's powerful seeing these women and girls that are protesting, knowing that that could very well Mm -hmm. endanger their life, as it did for Masa Amini. I guess what I've really been thinking is 
how do we, how should we be treating women? We were talking last week about, uh, it was in the context of music lyrics and the sexualization of women. And I said then, and it feels really relevant with this story, there are so many layers of broken history of the way that women have been treated and so many overreactions. So we have massive parts of history and places in the world, political leaders that are still seeking to police and suppress women. I have a quote from an interior minister from Iran. He was criticizing the protest slogan, Women, uh, Woman, Life and Freedom saying that those chanting it seem to see freedom in the nakedness and shamefulness of women. So there's this huge voice in history and the world that's saying women are inherently dangerous and should be suppressed. And then in the West, we have huge, powerful voices saying women should be free to do whatever they want, full autonomy, freedom without limits. And there's a difficult nuance as Christians that we speak into that and say that there's actually a better option. We don't have to overreact one way or the other, but we say women are free and have the exact same dignity and worth as men. We're created in the image of God, but that we're called to live freely under the rule of our creator God with him as king. Um, Peter, have you seen, have you seen Christians speaking into this moment or... Do you think that's the right thing to be saying? Am I being too soft? No, I think it is. I mean, I think it's interesting in one sense how little coverage it's had. So I think it has picked up on social media, but on mainstream. And you can say, but that's because there's been so much going on here. Yes, arguably there have been huge stories. But I mean, and I was struck again, I had to look it up myself. There was a, I knew there was something in the back of my mind about the situation in Afghanistan where a lot of girls being killed. There was 53 students killed in the school. And in one sense, that seems to just blip up on social media and then go away again. The protests have kept us in our forefront. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that they do. But it is, like, it's staggering to me how, how quickly those stories can just drift away again. And, and we do miss that moment. I mean, the very idea of morality, police, such a interesting, bizarre, challenging concept as to what's going on there. And then the immorality that's associated with it. And it is absolutely the targeting of women. So I do think we have to navigate those two stories because the, the perception is, and traveling in certain countries, like, well, Western women are just really liberal and, and sexualized and therefore and, and traveling in places like India with teams, like we have to be really careful for female members of teams because Indian men often just come touch them inappropriately because well, that's what we see in the films. You're like, no, that's, that is a perception we have articulated that's really unhealthy. So we're, how we use the freedoms that we have, but also, as you said, how we honor the dignity like we're, both in the image of God, male and female. So I don't think we as Christians have done well enough narrating that middle space, and we find ourselves caught between these two sets of stories then, of morality police on one hand, we're like, no, that's not what we're going to see, and then a highly sexualized, liberated, but for freedom for what, in all sorts of unhelpful and perverse ways with a highly sexualized song lyrics. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to navigate that with my daughters, like how do I say, what does it mean to be a woman, female, made in the image of God, and live in this culture that we're trying to navigate? I also think Christians can be nervous, maybe perhaps particularly Christians who have a kind of wider public presence can be nervous about speaking into this because, you know, these are, it affects largely women who have a different faith to ours. Mm -hmm. It's an expression, the hijab in its right sense, if you want, is a 
is an expression of submission to Allah. And it could feel like, oh, Christians, we don't really, we don't want to be seen to promoting a faith that we don't follow. Rachel Den Harder, Den Hollander, who is a ex-gymnast and brilliant Christian advocate, particularly in the area of abuse, advocating for those who have been abused. She has, uh, she retweeted a video of schoolgirls protesting, taking off their hijabs, and she said, "May these courageous young women live to see." their generation and the next set free. There's just no words adequate for the grief and power in these dynamics. And I think that's a helpful example of, yeah, as Christians, we don't just want to be advocating for our freedoms or for Christians to be free. The, the ideal situation is to see freedom of religion or belief for all, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I find the French response to that very challenging. They have their laicity, their highly secularized public square that bans the hijab in any mm. shape or form. And so I can see an aspect of that, I have some sympathy, but then at the same time, but hold on, who gets to decide that? So which bits of religion are considered harmful? Because bits of our faith are presented we want to absolutely advocate for in the public square. So largely I want to respect those who choose to follow that pathway. So I don't like where the French have gone in that, the banning of all faith in the public square and very draconian government way of doing it. And yet at the same time, how do we have the conversation to say there are aspects of faith that really challenge me and I don't want agree with and think are problematic to our, in this case, Muslim friends, but there's going to be areas of those disagreements. So that navigation of what the freedom of religion looked like is challenging, I think, for us. And I don't think banning it from the public square is the right answer. I don't think privatising it, which is what many Christians have essentially done, say, I want to keep my faith, I'll just do my own quiet time, and then when I go into the public square, I'll not say much about it. That's not going to work either. But in a plural public square, it's tricky to navigate how these things come together. Mm, and I, I, I think Rachel Den Hollander's responses and encouragement I think as Christians it's important to discern what the oppression is in this moment yes and as believers we can speak out and advocate for those of faith no faith a different faith a humanist because we should be able to discern what the oppression is and in this moment the oppression is towards women it's targeted and it's somewhat of control coercion and a sense that women should just submit based on their gender and knowing the full counsel of God he would be in uproar and enraged in this mm. and I'm looking forward to a conversation that I have later today with the church in Iran in how they're engaging how they're mobilizing Christians who've converted from Muslim Islam uh, who live in Iran how they're engaging in this kind of political and cultural moment and no doubt they'll be at the forefront of equipping the church to respond mm. Yeah, because it's definitely worth knowing. I mean, there has been these ongoing stories of incredible things happening in Iran in terms of God at work and kingdom movement. And is this unrelated to what we're seeing now? I, I, there's not a direct link in the press that I'm reading, but I'm really intrigued as to how much we've read about conversion stories in Iran. Yeah. And then this movement, that, that seems as if they're not two totally separate stories. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know enough to say they're definitely linked, yes. but I yeah. feel like there's something more going on there that could be incredibly interesting and setting from a kingdom perspective. Yeah, and I'm fully ready for either of you to criticise the sort of dodgy theology and what, what I'm about to say, uh, which is always a great prelude. But I just, I was thinking, uh, I was listening to a BBC report about how this has set a light, a spark that was already there. The fire is raging on and on and on in terms of these protests in Iran. It's growing, not diminishing. The more protests there are, the more reaction there are from Ranti police and yeah, wider officials. And it kind of got me thinking about the church in Iran 
and how it's one of the most suppressed churches in the world and yet one of the fastest growing and that kind of you know is there some sort of parallel there of when there is a truth that is really worth something whether that's the truth that women deserve equal rights and dignity or the truth of the gospel that actually you can't suppress that now I know those I know those are two different things one there's you know the work of the Holy Spirit above all else but it did it did just make me think of that no pushback well I don't know if it's dodgy theology but as you're speaking it's just making me think that in Ephesians we're spoken or we're taught uh, that we do not wage war against flesh and blood mm-hmm. but there's principalities uh, and kingdoms in mm-hmm. you know the heavenly realms that we're fighting against and I think Iran is definitely a case of the media seeks to confront what they see so what do they see they see the oppression of women they see you know their rights being reduced being restricted I would say as Christians that's part of the story but the greatest story is that there's an enemy within Iran Mm. that does not want the truth of who Jesus is to set the captive free both in spirit, mind and body. And, and so that's the thing we should be interceding for, praying for, uh, praying for our brothers and sisters in Iran that are on the ground and engaged in this conversation in an entirely different way than we are mm. here in 176 mm. in London. And we are going to move on to our next story, but we love thinking about as we, on cross-section, address the stories that are going on, thinking, you know, is there a moment for evangelism here? And I just wonder that as people talk about what's going on in Iran, as we've kind of touched upon, the hijab itself is not a symbol of oppression. It's the, the, those in positions of power that are using it to oppress women. And actually, the women that choose and want to wear the hijab, often that is a true and loving submission to the God that they believe in from the Quran. And actually, it's so... There's a, there's a twist moment in there when it comes to the Christian faith, isn't it? That we also believe in a God who is worth loving and submitting to. It's not the same God. And uh, yeah, the gospel, it's a moment to talk about gospel and how that, how we're called to live in freedom under the kingdom, under the kingship of Jesus. Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. I think this is often portrayed as Iran against the West. Mm. And it's not. But Western values have huge links to Christian values. But at the same time, we want to be really careful. Tom uh, Holland has this quote, but never before had there been anything quite like it. A citizenship that wasn't owed. It was owed not to birth or descent or to legal prescriptions or belief alone, but to belief alone. So it was belief itself. So kingdom citizenship is fundamentally different. I don't want this seen as a West against mm. Iran moment. Mm. This is something potentially quite different. But... We can't also deny that some of the Western ideas around freedom do come from our Christian values that have shaped the West. Like that's a reality. So it's complex to engage. I think this is a kingdom moment. I'd be exciting to pray into that and really reflect on it in that way. That's a great point and a great reminder that there's always a Tom Holland quote that's relevant for any and every situation. (laughs) I do my best to bring it. (laughs) Alicia, let's come to you for our next story this week. Yes, I get to talk about two women uh, with strong political views, opinions. Their shared kind of perspective is that they would both consider themselves conservative. Uh, The difference is one's in the United Kingdom, one's in America. Both would identify as being female. I use that language to kind of stir up those 
their own gender critical views. Both are female. They are female. Sorry, I'm just playing up to the stereotype. We'll get there in the end. The first story, of course, is Liz Truss' speech at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham. She had a difficult week in the space of four days. (laughs) She uh, made, she and her chancellor made a kind of economic policy of kind of, you know, reducing tax burdens, but it seemed to benefit the wealthy. There was internal uproar within the Conservative Party. There was national outrage in terms of uh, its relationship to the cost of living crisis. And so she needed to kind of uh, assert herself as a leader, uh, as a woman with a plan, a woman that can be trusted, a woman that is in uh, strong leadership. And so yesterday she took to the dispatch box, or rather party conference mic, (laughs) spoke for 36 minutes, which apparently is the shortest speech at a party conference was heckled by seemingly Greenpeace protesters. I say seemingly because someone rightly said that just because it had a Greenpeace banner doesn't mean it wasn't staged or cooed. But we're not jaded. We're not jaded. No, no, no. And she, to be honest, my reaction in engaging with it was kind of hard to watch. I feel the media naturally want to come at uh, Liz Truss. She's not as charismatic a leader as her predecessor or predecessors before her. And so every word is always challenged. How she presents, how she delivers is always in question. And there's still many unknowns in terms of how well that speech went down. Some were somewhat disgruntled, some were upset. She has uh, apparently an internal conversation with the Conservative Party backbenchers is because the next revolt and rebellion is around raising benefits in line with inflation rather than wages. So it's a busy 10 days. There's murmurs that she will essentially lose her role as prime minister in that time. So there's that individual who's here in the UK who's confronting on all sides. And then the other, which hit my Instagram poll, was Candice Owen, who is a author and political commentator in the US, conservative, a Republican, highly outspoken on all things to do with racial justice, uh, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement. And this week she attended Ye, and for those who don't know, that's Kanye West's new name, season nine edition. Yeah, he's changed his name to Ye, which is Christians. How do we feel about that? Ye, season nine, uh, passion, uh, passion, Paris Fashion Week, where they both turned up wearing t-shirts that said white lives matter and there has been outrage from the fashion industry there's been outrage from corporate america news outlets left and right essentially saying how dare they as two black americans push back so strongly on the protests of black lives matter on that so let's facilitate a conversation (laughs) have you seen any of those t-shirts Joe, have you seen any of the coverage on Candace Owen or your reflections on Liz Trust? Wow, that's a lot to digest. Well, I think my first thought with Liz Trust is politics aside, I, I, I don't want to get pegged with this quote. So, Alicia, what did you say she reminded you of when she comes on to speak? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Given that I have working relationships in Westminster, I try to explain my relationships. No, 
didn't say that. Let's maybe not go there. Okay, fine. It wasn't. It wasn't insulting, but I I sympathise with those trusts because I think there are a lot of people who like to think that they promote kindness in the general sphere of their social media worlds or their public platforms, whether that's radio presenters or whatever. And yet, though those rules don't apply when it's Liz Truss or anyone else in politics and yes whatever I might think about her politics as a woman in power you do wonder how much of a harder time she gets because she is a woman in power mm-hmm. and as we said before as Christians we believe all are made equal she is just as much as much right to be there as a man and I want to I don't want to see her treated in that way so that's my reflection on that part Oh, I, I just, I want to get into this whole Candace Owens piece. Basic question, why is it controversial to... No, I'm going to flip it. What's controversial about the Black Lives Matter movement? Why, why is there anything that anyone would want to push back on that? According to Candace Owen, her great pushback is that it's a movement that has rallied and used the oppression, victimisation of the Black community against them caused them to kind of respond in retaliation, uproar, riots, believing that the police institutions are against them. And yet as a movement and as an organisation had not invested financially back into those communities that is seeking to bring racial equality to. And her other criticism, and you can follow her on YouTube where she gives an explanation. And I find it interesting that she's given an explanation why she's wore White Lives Matter and yay mm. hasn't. He doesn't feel he needs to. I think there's somewhat of a gender imbalance there or what I'm reading into. Yeah. Her pushback on the whole Black Lives Matter movement is that the greatest oppressor to black Americans isn't policing or policing brutality, but she uses stats and facts to say that black women, single parent women, are aborting their own children at a higher rate that those on the left of America, Democrats or left-leaning, do not want to confront and engage. She talks about the role of families and how they're decimated amongst Latino and Black Americans. And so the knock-on effect is that it shows statistically single-parent households, children's life expectancy and outcomes in progressing are significantly hampered, but the culture celebrates and kind of decides to destroy families. And I think what I would say to listeners who are typically left-leaning politically, be brave and listen to break your echo chambers. I'm someone that typically wouldn't identify myself as a listener, Candace Owen, but she's saying things that are factually accurate and as Christians we should be brave enough to engage in that and I say this also that as Christians the victimization of the black community we are weaker than we are less than is unhelpful to it's an unhelpful narrative that I don't feel that those on the left truly engage black people statistically across the globe are more socially conservative then and the numbers back that up then the narratives that get pushed out on the left so that would be how she would answer that uh, and I'm definitely still engaging in her narrative and her understanding on that but Peter 
Well, I think what's uh, I'm interested in the the Kenya piece of that. Like it seems so. It was a Paris Fashion Week. It's such a commercial thing. It's just driven the headlines. Therefore, it drives interest. So everybody's talking about. It. I mean, he knows he's done this many times. He's released mm-hmm. songs that have done that. They pulled Christians in. They provoked another group. He's, so he's got form on that for sure. I was listening to something running this morning. David French was being interviewed by Andrew Sullivan and saying about listening to the two different sides in so many of these debates because. It's incredibly easy to get into an echo chamber where we're only mm-hmm. going to hear whichever side we're on on any of these debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were talking very specifically about right and left again on this. I think the challenge also on that, so Black Lives Matter, the statement, absolutely, 100% agree with. The organisation has different aims and that's always been, I think, the mm-hmm. challenge in the space. And it, for me, it's a foundation story issue. So the reason they've run the campaign, as I understand and can see it, is that their foundation story is fundamentally different. It's a power thing. It's a kind of Marxist understanding of power. Yes. A group has power. They need to be dispossessed and decentered, white privilege, and a new group needs to have power. It's a zero-sum game. Only one group can have power, and they want to get rid of one group and replace a different group. And as I understand, that's their founding way of engaging in the space. Black Lives Matter? Black oh, Lives Matter yes. is a campaign. Right, right. So you've got questions about money and finances and they've raised lots of money where to go. Those are important too. But for me, it's a foundational issue. So why do I believe Black Lives Matter? Because everyone's made in the image of God. We want to build out from there. Male and female to our previous story, black and white, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. So from that foundation, we are therefore engaged in issues like racial justice because there is an injustice that needs to be mm-hmm. dealt with. So the foundation is different. So I have a strange engagement where I say, you're free is absolutely 100% agree. White lives matter, black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter. There's lots of different things we could say there, but we need to respond to an injustice that has gone on that has affected the black community in particular. And I, as a white man, need to listen and hear more about that and engage. But I want to do it from a good justice frame. So I have real problems with their foundation story. And then, as Alyssa was saying, I think it gets typecast because you're like, well, you're either on the left or the right, so we'll listen to you or we'll listen to you. And then it just becomes the power game dynamics. Mm. I think that's really unhealthy. We need to understand power and how it's used. But if it's a zero-sum game, we just get rid of one group. And that's where the privilege stuff, I think, gets problematic because you're checking and just ignoring one group, going for another. We hit intersectionality. Which groups hit the right set of boxes? That's tough. That's, that's, we're going to have to challenge some of that. And then that's going to alienate different sides in the conversation. So for me, foundation stories is critical in this. And we're finding ourselves in the God story. It takes us in a slightly different direction in each of these conversations. Yeah, it's it's interesting both with so both with the Iran story and with this story, it's kind of it's people trying to make the voices of the oppressed heard. What I find interesting with the White Lives Matter t-shirts is if I saw or like when I see the image of them wearing these White Lives Matter t-shirts, I think I think Oh, are they saying? Are they saying that we've overreacted in terms of Black mm. Lives Matter? Are they saying? Are they pushing back and saying, "Oh, get over it, White Lives Matter too"? You know, they're kind of going back to that "All Lives Matter" mm-hmm. thing that was going around. And it, it to me, it feels like you need to do the research and plug in and listen to what they actually have to say in order to understand the story. Mm. We're going to move on to our last story, unless anyone speaks up. They're not. No, well, we can do a super summary because we're, we're conscious of time and maybe we come back. In, but, so let me frame it, the mermaid story. And just so I've jumped in a little to say that. <laughs> so mermaids are a, group, a charity that work with trans children primarily. They have come under increasing pressure. 
Lots of people have been saying for a while we've real concerns about them. But two big stories have hit the news this week. Uh, the Telegraph have reported that the Charity Commissioner are now investigating them for regulatory compliance issues. Uh, child safeguarding, how they were running discussion groups, uh, where they were sending kids within that, and then breast binders that they were sending out to children. Mm. Um, to and feed it to girls. To, to, to yeah, young girls, like 12, 13, 14-year-olds without parental consent. And the cast review that's been ongoing into the whole gender identity services has raised real concerns about chest binders and puberty blockers. They're also saying are irreversible, um, uh, sorry, are reversible. And so there's a whole safeguarding question around it. And then a second story also broke this week in the Times that a trustee of the charity quit after giving a speech to a paedophile age group. It's their title. And basically, this is one of their uh, trustees is a lecturer at the LSE. Uh, in gender and sexuality studies, and he would talk about minor attracted persons instead of paedophilia, and talking about the queering of children. So very concerning academic work. It's a really scenario I've looked at previously, like very, I think, disturbing what they're doing around consent on that. So the headline is that that charity is being investigated. What's interesting to me in relation to our previous story was, again, how left and right are breaking on that, because preconceived ideas and foundation stories, something like, oh, this is brilliant, this is the best thing ever, some on the right, and then some on the left, but it's, you know, are like, no, no, we're going to continue to defend them. How this is so important, what they do, regardless of these little missteps. You know, like, hold right. on, these are pretty fundamental missteps. It's a safeguarding mm-hmm. and a trustee. And it's also not a victory because those with gender dysphoria still need support and help. Whether this charity is appropriate, out of serious concerns, but we need to go to the underlying issues. What's going on here? These are big safeguarding questions. These are real concerns about consent and whether children can give consent and how they're being looked after and supervised. And again, it's exceedingly toxic in the social media space. And it's a, it's a fundamentalism issue. I was raised in a pretty fundamentalist background religiously. And it is interesting. It's hard to come out of that. And, and I think people are fundamental in their views on these issues. And it's ideologically driven. They don't care about the evidence. And they're really struggling to step back at this moment and realize that actually one of the primary charities has real questions to answer yeah. and isn't doing it right now. Um, so a big, big question. Either of you two seen the story? I could go on with the story all day. Yeah, I, yes, it's that age-old question of we have to be willing to investigate allegations of abuse in organisations, even when that might hurt us. So in the same way that we want to see that done in churches and Christian organisations, we want safeguarding to be um, of utmost importance and importance and upheld to the highest degree. Yeah, that's got to happen in all spaces. And I feel like we keep coming back to this human dignity issue this week of we want to see people with gender dysphoria and trans people having the absolute best care and being given what they truly need. And if an organisation is not doing that properly, that has to be questioned, even if it might hurt them, Mm -hmm. as it were. And why is the biggest group of people transitioning teenage girls? Mm. What is it about being a teenage girl that they don't think they can do? Why did they think they need to become a male to navigate this world? What message are we saying that that's necessary? Mm. Uh, it's really problematic that the stats have shifted so significantly and it goes to our previous discussions about what it is to be a woman in this world. Why do most who transition present then as very, men who transition present as, as very sexualized versions of women? I mean, one of the biggest people pushing back on this is Caitlyn Jenner, linked yeah. to our previous stories, like who's connected with some of these with Kenya and all through yeah. Mary. So he 
transition to she, but he's the one saying, hold on, this is going too far. Uh-huh. But he then was on the cover of Vanity Fair in a highly sexualized presentation as a very kind of sultry looking female presentation. It goes to stereotypes at so many levels, it's problematic. Alessia, maybe last word goes to you, Alessia. <laughs> wow, make it count, Alessia. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, uh, I would love you to no pressure. work together. Just get together Land this episode. <laughs> in some neat, useful way. I think in The Mermaid Story, my greatest reflection is how many women, women who typically cast as women of privilege, either through their education, their wealth, there's platform, we've got J.K. Rowling, I can't remember the professor from Sussex. There have been other cases who have come out really strongly against the gender ideology of our day and saying it's incredibly harmful to women. I truly believe we've only got to this point where mermaids are being investigated on their safeguarding policies because women have chosen to take the hit and to step out and to speak out when it was completely unpopular for them to do so. And so that's my reflections on the Mermaid case and thinking about how many women, politics, culture, media, parents who have spoken out in this moment who have sought to be like, this is not okay. This is not okay for me. This is not okay for the generation that's emerging. We need to ask more questions than to be free uh, and open in that. So that's my main reflections on the Mermaid case in 90 seconds, but I look forward to a future conversation on it. Lovely. Thank you. Remember to like, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at EA UK News or on... That was close <laughs> call. Good recovery. Or on Instagram at Evan- Evangelical Alliance. Get in touch. Let us know what we should be talking about next week on Cross Section. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.